You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. We just had Michael Perusco on the line, CEO at Berry Street, talking about a study that they have helped put together and that is talking and putting the case forward for early intervention. And the key take-homes is why hasn't it been done earlier and, and why can't it be done today? Yeah, and, and I think Michael, you know, one, is doing an incredible job, I think, of actually advocating for something that definitely needs to happen. But the, you know, the part that's really stuck with me is that I think what's what's happened is that the system, and it is a system, is actually meeting an individual on their doorstep. And what I mean by that is that the way that we actually deal with um, child protection is very much it's the system that's actually coming to help. You know, for example, if I was in that situation, coming to help in air quotes, help Joe, and I'm standing on that doorstep, actually going. I know I need help, but I don't know how to express that. And what's actually happening is that kids are actually getting taken away and taken away from their family in situations that doesn't actually need to happen. It's not the best outcome for them. It's actually the worst outcome. And as Michael clearly points out, of course, there's instances where um, children definitely need to be removed. But I think the, the heart of what he talks to us about today is that in a lot of instances, that is the last thing that that child needs. So to that point, Joe, we just actually got off air, but we really wanted, you mentioned something about, I don't know, that, that tendency that happens when we judge other people's parenting or we judge other people's lives from, from afar and just say, why haven't they got that together? Or why aren't they doing this? Or that looks terrible without understanding the context of maybe how that person's life is, or even asking the simple question, how can I help them to, to support not just judge, not just criticize, and not just say how to do things better, but go, how can I help them better their lives for them? Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's, it's you know, it's it kind of, it, it's risable. And it's one of the few things that I, you know, I do get um, fired up about is that, yes, you can observe that. And yes, in the moment, you might be like, yeah, that kid is frustrating or annoying. And I wish that parent wouldn't let their kid run X, Y, Z through. But the, the next question you actually have to ask yourself is not one of judgment. It's actually, maybe they've never been taught, or maybe they don't know how or maybe there's something else that is actually going on that has got nothing to do with anything that you actually actually understand and i think that's the part that we miss in in those situations is that rather than looking at it from a how can i actually help it's more about that's already wrong and you know like a simple way to try to understand it is like have you ever tried to do anything that you don't know how to do have you ever tried that once? And if you ever been in a situation where you're like, oh, wow, everyone's looking at me and I'm not doing particularly well with that. Think about how that feels. Think about that feeling that you actually have. And that is probably what's playing out for that person in that, in that situation, even at a very, very simplistic level. So if you've ever tried to do something and actually not been able to do it first time 100%, that's kind of how that feels. And then think, you know, kind of wouldn't you wish that rather than kind of, you know, the whole class or whatever it is that is judging you for doing that, wouldn't you rather that they actually step back and try to understand that that's the first time you're doing something or there's something else actually going on rather than kind of sitting back in judgment of the effort that you're putting forward? Yeah, well said. And, and Michael really points to a cyclic, um, systemic institution that is taking kids away unnecessarily and and some of the stories that he points out and joe's so poignantly suggests when when 
child protection come to your door they're on your doorstep and and they're really right in your space and you do everything you can and make a lot of terrible decisions i'm sure right at that moment to to hide your insecurities rather than ask for that help and that and that judgment comes from people walking down the street seeing your house or or so many different levels i think on such a softer more nuanced position of understanding how we um we might not be able to impact the decision at the final end but we can definitely change culture and we can definitely change our own neighborhood and we can definitely change our own perspective of other people who are struggling so trying to break that down in ourselves and and give a bit of leniency where it's due i think is is a good start but it's definitely deep and michael paints a good picture of some some easy solutions that can be taken up and make a lot of sense both financially socially and civic if you could just start off we always ask this we did just speak about it um where does this podcast find you paint us that picture and paint it in all its glory uh so i am in north melbourne uh, in the the heart of the the lockdown, the COVID lockdown, uh, and I'm in my study at home, where I have been working from home for six months, and the tedious nature of the last. Goodness me! It's probably only been five or six weeks. Uh, is um, slowly killing me, metaphorically, of course. Um, but uh, I am desperately looking forward to some announcements from the premier this weekend um, that might uh, might lead to me being able to do something more than what I'm doing at the moment. I got to say that my kids are my kids have been pretty happy throughout this, especially my um, uh, my eight year old Thomas. Every every day I say, "How was your day?" and he goes, "Fantastic!" He is just loving <laughs> COVID. Nice. Uh, he uh, it's, his, <laughs> it's his dream. Little 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 bit of Minecraft, the computer game, little bit of other bits and pieces. Staying at home in his pajamas all day, he's loving it. <laughs> nice. It's I mean, it's so funny. Like my um my eldest, uh, so and kind of my my youngest Maya. So they they've got this whole thing at their school at the moment where it's um they have this saying which is business on top, party on the bottom. And what the girls <laughs> love about that, Michael, is that they have to be in their school uniform. Like you can actually see on the on the Zoom call, like the kind of the, whatever software they're using. They don't use Zoom. Um, it's, so they have to be business on top which is their school uniform, but then at the bottom they can be whatever they want. So they take great joy in kind of wearing like random pajama pants all day oh, and just being hilarious. like, I'm at school. So I reckon some uniform well, changes are due. It's the little yeah, things. Yeah, well, uh, in this household, it's pajamas all day. <laughs> <laughs> pajamas all day, all the time. You're running the pajamas as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, Michael, so the, the kind of few questions that, that we have for you, I mean, it's certainly you've been an, an absolutely um, an amazing leader in this space and kind of, you know, outspoken in some senses in the kind of uh, in the kind of non-governmental area for, for tw- over 20 years now. Um, and you talk a lot about kind of um, the, the idea here, there's a child care protection system here in Victoria is actually broken and needs fixing. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us about kind of your view on that and what it actually does need fixing? Sure. So I think 
the the first thing I'd say is that when people think about the child protection system, they think about a parent or parents who are bad and a child that needs saving. And there's a lot more nuance to it than that. There's a, really mo most most of it really is in the grey. Um, there are there are certainly some parents, you know, in the case of um, uh, particularly sexual abuse, who who should not obviously parent. Um, uh, and and in some cases the you know severe physical neglect, but apart from those that relatively small group, you're talking about parents who love their kids and want to do the best for their kids, don't know how, maybe weren't parented well themselves, and are struggling to do their best, and child protection, um, the, the view that those children need saving is not right. Um, it is really more a case of that family needs help to stay together safely. Um, and we know that when a child is removed, their life chances removed from the family and they go into out of home care, their, their, um, their life chances drop um, dramatically. Um, so that's the other assumption that's wrong, that we assume that life when children are removed is better than when they're with their family. That's not always the case. I think the, the other thing that we um, assume is that a lot of work has been done with that family before, um, you know, before the child is removed. But once again, that's not true. So what tends to happen is, um, you know, there'll, there'll be an issue at school. So maybe a teacher reports to child protection, there's a phone call, child protection come and have a look. Child protection say, oh, look, it's not great, but it's all right, I think we'll leave it. Uh, then there'll be another notification, maybe a few months later. Once again, child protection will come in and have a look. Maybe they'll say, look, things have got worse. Maybe we need to provide a family, um, a family service. Um, then there's a referral to the family service because of wait times. The family doesn't won't get seen for, you know, three to six months. Uh, so in the meantime, child protection come back again and things have got worse again and there's no choice but to remove. So there's nothing in between, you know, things kind of going well and a, and, and a family just managing through to removal. There is no work with the family to build them up. It's kind of a monitoring exercise. Mm. And why do you think that is, um, Michael? Why are we so, why are we so quick to enforce the separation? Oh, I, I, well, the first thing I'd say is we're, in a sense, we're not quick to force the separation because, you know, there's got to be quite a few notifications. So, so we're, 
you know, we just let things drift. We left, let things drift and almost expect them to get better. But they don't get better because we're not doing anything differently and the family isn't getting any um, support. And I, I'd say we go straight to removal because at the moment child protection really have two choices. They leave the, the children with the family or they remove. That's it. They've got, those are the two tools that they've got at their disposal. There's nothing in the middle. Um, and that is the bit that is fundamentally missing. The other bit that um, is missing is that there is no investment to make that happen. So I think governments around the country and around the world, and most certainly here in Victoria, they do not invest in child protection systems and in the and then in the support services that family need families need to keep them together safely um, and the reluctance to do that is because largely there's no votes in it um and is there know, no votes just, in it and there is an industry or a system that works to catch those those kids or, or service the way it is in a, in a sense, is there a service that is doing it before when there is no early intervention? Because of the child, the child protection system picks it up late? Yeah, because they pick it up late and the kids are separated, yeah. but there are, there are um, services that look after kids when they are separated. Uh, look, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I think it, it's just something that does not occupy government's mind. It is a small, a relatively small group of children and families. And I think the thing that, because you've got at the moment in uh, Victoria, you've got about um, 13,000 kids in in care, which you know compared to the over, you know, the overall population is is tiny. But what um, is often overlooked is that has doubled in the last five years and is going to double again in the next five years. The other thing that's overlooked is that if you have a child, um, sorry, if you were a child or a young person who has been in care and removed from your family, you have a extraordinarily high chance of having your children removed. Mm. And that's what that means is the more kids that are in care, the more kids that are gonna be in care for a long time because you've got that cycle of disadvantage mm. happening. And that cycle... And I think... Sorry, that cycle sorry. of disadvantage is is massive and it's so great that you, that you say that so early on in the piece in this conversation and, and you did in the National Child Protection Week put together a video that um, really pointed out institutional racism that exists within... Victoria's child protection system, um, calling out systemic racism that exists um, where yeah. you put together the data set and really succinctly say that where Aboriginal Australians, Aboriginal Victorians are well and truly overrepresented and have been on an incremental, steady, steep slope trending upwards, being overrepresented in that cohort. Yeah, the, the, the figures are eye-watering. So 26% of children... Uh, in care are Aboriginal. 0.8% of children in Victoria are Aboriginal. We remove Aboriginal children in Victoria at five times the rate of New South Wales. 
There is absolutely no answer for that other than the system is institutionally biased and racist. And the sooner that we confront that in a meaningful way, the sooner we're going to have a situation where uh, there are going to be less Aboriginal kids um, in care. It is a shocking statistic. And I think, you know, the other thing I said during that week is, you know, we've got the Black Lives Matter movement raising issues in, in America and their uh, issues raised here in Australia with respect to Aboriginal deaths in custody and uh, the over-representation of Aboriginal peoples in the justice systems and in prison. Um, I think the, the, the big one that was missing is the over-representation of, of Aboriginal children in care. It really, it has a profound impact on their life chances and continues that systemic oppression that has been experienced uh, by Aboriginal peoples from, uh, you know, uh, white Australians for as long as we um, have been, as long as white people have been on the um, on the continent. And it's just not good enough anymore. Um, you know, you, you, you simply can't have a government system that is operating in in that way. And Michael, what do you what do you think is actually actually behind that at a at a governmental level? I mean, obviously, I understand um, <clears throat> systemic failure and the fact that there's there's inherent bias, unfortunate as it is at at times. But does it come back to the lack of experience and direct experience by policymakers in terms of actually what it actually is to one be removed from from your family, but in in this instance to also not necessarily have empathy or any kind of understanding of the actual community itself that they're actually actually entering? I mean, it does feel at times that the approach that's taken by government is more it's a sledgehammer to kind of um, you know solve a, a very simple problem where like a, a hug would do, so to speak. So I'm just curious to get your take on where. Where do you think the well, issues look, I, start? I think it, it comes it comes down to leadership. Um, I mean, I, I, when you're confronted with that um, with that evidence, you clearly have a problem within your organisation, um, and that you have to do something about it. And this, so you know, in terms of the staff at um, in child protection. Um, you know, we, we have staff come across from child protection, come into Berry Street, they're fantastic workers, or our staff go back into child protection. So, and, and I think they would be mortified to think that they're um, making decisions that are race-based. But at the end of the day, the individual decisions are being made. And if you're the leader, you need to have a confronting discussion with your workforce about what is going on. Um, and you need to uh, have a culture that is continually challenging itself to say, are we, are we being racist in our decision-making? How do we really test this? How do we ensure that this isn't creeping into the way in which we're thinking when we're going into an Aboriginal household or we're thinking about whether an Aboriginal parents 
have the, the capacity to reunite with their their kids. That the only way is is to have a really, as I said, a really meaningful discussion with that workforce about what racism is and what is at the heart of some of the bias decisions that we made. I think in this in this country we find it very difficult to have those discussions. As soon as you know you mention racism, everyone's like um, oh my God, you cannot call anyone racist. That is the worst thing you can call them. Yet we continue to be racist. What I say to our staff is that I grew up in Queensland in the 1970s and 80s. I was programmed to be racist from the day that I was born. I, I There is absolutely no way I was going to come out of that any other way except be racist. And I can name times in my life when I have been racist. Now, I am lucky enough to have gone through a journey where I can recognize that, recognize that I have the agency to do something about that and can talk openly about it. That is, These are the types of discussions that have to go on in our institutions in Victoria's child protection system and other child protection systems um, right around the country and justice systems. And they're the discussions we're having within Berry Street. Um, you know, we've got uh, staff of colour who will now, you know, they now feel comfortable raising experiences of racism they've had within the Berry Street workplace, which I find mortifying, but at least we know about it and we're doing something about it. This, this is the discussion that needs to occur within all government organisations if we have a shot at reducing the overrepresentation of Aboriginal peoples in, in the systems like the child protection system. And I wanted to just get your opinion on, on just how scary it is when DHS or, or child protection come knocking at your door. And, and I'm so fortunate that I haven't had that experience. I'm in two and a bit years into being a parent myself and, and being alive for 29 years. But have you ever felt that knock personally or know a story of that and, and understand the gravity of that and then having that presence in the house? So just give a listener an insight into... So it's... Yeah, it's interesting you ask that. So... Um, about um, uh, four years ago, so it was about four years ago, uh, I remember on Father's Day, our, our eight-year-old, so our eight-year-old son, he's eight years now, he was about four, um, and I tripped over him in, um, uh, on Father's Day. In fa- on, on Father's Day, I tripped over him, and I remember it, near the door. And then that night, I also tripped over him um, in the in the bathroom, uh, and I and I remember those two incidences um, quite um, quite clearly. Um, and he ended up with a bruise on his his cheek, and I was sitting at my desk, um, and he he goes to, he at the time he was going to to childcare, and I was sitting at at my desk. At, um, at work and I get a call from my wife Georgette and Georgette says um, uh, child protect, you know, child protection have called, they're concerned about the bruise on 
Thomas's um, cheek and they want to interview us straight away. So, you know, come home. And that was, that was surreal, getting that call. Um, and to be perfectly honest, we were, I think at the time we saw the bruise developing, we were joking about child protection being involved. But what, what turned out was that um, uh, the, um, the childcare centre had asked Thomas what happened, Daddy did it, did he do it on purpose? Yes. Uh, okay, well, they called Child Protection, Child Protection interviewed um, Thomas. Interestingly, they were interviewing Thomas at exactly the same time I was meeting with um, someone senior in, um, in DHHS. But the drive home, I, I remember the drive home, and it wasn't a very long drive, but I struggled to stay on the road. I remember the three three hours of questioning from the, the two child protection practitioners, and it was the and I, I might say they did a they they did a really good job, but it was three of the scariest hours in my life, and it was scary because the state the state was coming in to my family and coming into my family in a way where I had no control. So I felt viscerally that complete loss of power and control um, that we have over our ordinary day-to-day lives, but more specifically than that, over my children and that that feeling that your that something could happen that could lead to your child my my child being removed my son being removed was one of the scariest feelings i've ever i've ever experienced um and while it was shocking to go through it is really, I, I am thankful that I had the opportunity. I'm not thankful, obviously, that Thomas had a bruise, but I am thankful that I had the opportunity to go through it because it gave me a sense of what it's like for the families that we work with who go through it and how they must feel when child protection knocks at their door. But I think it would be much worse if child protection is knocking at your door and you're an Aboriginal parent, and I think it would be much worse if child protection knocked on your door and you had really, you were on a really low um, income or you were on Centrelink payments and you were struggling to make ends meet and the house was not looking fantastic and or you had a couple of children with disabilities and you were struggling with, um, you know, managing with their, managing their behaviour at that particular uh, point, and how the vulnerability they must feel at that point in time, the sometimes the anger that they will feel, um, and how that then manifests in the way in which they um, they deal with child protection, and I think that that very dynamic leads to families hiding things from child protection in order to demonstrate 
as much as possible that things are all right. And that is exactly the opposite of what we want. We want families and we want parents to say, look, I am struggling. I don't want you to remove my kids, but I need help and that they get the help they need. Unfortunately, what we have is a child protection system that does knock on the door and has that binary choice of leaving the children, not providing assistance or removing children. And families, they know that. They know that and that's scary and that leads to really, um, I think, terrible decisions being made um, about many of Victoria's most um, vulnerable children. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. And Michael, what would what would need to change so that when when the state shows up on your doorstep, that that dynamic is actually actually changed or the the balance um, feels better? I mean, what what types of methodologies and kind of um, service reform have you seen throughout your career that actually starts to counteract some of that? Because there's no doubt the the natural um, you know the the natural emotional response is the one that you're already alluding to, and even in your own experience, mm. is that you're frightened. <clears throat> Yeah. You feel out of control, you feel angry, you feel shame, you feel all of these things that something as simple as a fall can turn into um, your child not, not being there, for, for example, is that that's, that's all very, very normal to feel. But this, this system itself isn't actually set up. It doesn't seem to actually deal with that emotional reality of meeting you where you're at. No, and I, and I, I think one of the really big pieces that's, that's missing in the, in the system is the idea of early intervention so so when um an issue is first flagged within a family um that there is the option to provide that family with the support that they need and that missing piece results in many many more children going being removed and going into care and we actually recently um, released a a report um, or we sorry we commissioned the report it was prepared by social ventures australia and funded by the macquarie foundation which looked at what's happening with the numbers of children in out-of-home care in victoria and as i said earlier uh, the number of kids has doubled over the next five, uh, over the last five years, and is set to double again, uh, more than double, over the coming five years. So to go from twelve thousand to um, uh, approximately twenty six thousand, and that. So that's based on the status quo. What would it look like? What would it look like is if 
when issues first arised, first, first arose with families and the right type of support was provided, what, what would that look like from a system point of view as well as a, um, uh, an economic point of view? And, and what we found is that, you know, just at a, at a high level, if you invest $150 million a year um, in services that support families, you basically save $300 million in not having as many children in care. So you get a one for, you know, two for one return on your investment but more importantly, what you do is keep families together and keep families together safely. And you don't have the really poor outcomes that uh, exist, that, that, that end up existing for kids who have been through the care process. I think one, one of the most shocking things to me when I got into this role was to realise that that the, the the outcomes for young people who, children and young people who have gone into care are poor at a health level, at an educational um, uh, level, uh, you know, um, em employment level, uh, housing, so many, many of them are homeless. So on, on numerous levels, very poor. And we can stop that from happening by intervening earlier and what it showed, so if we implement this over a 10 year period, you keep 12,000 kids out of care. So you keep 1,200 kids out of care each year. Um, so 12,000 kids out of care and you save $1.5 billion doing it. <laughs> like that just makes Makes sense. So sense. <laughs> yeah. It probably will it's never like happen. Wet, it makes wet, too much sense, right? <laughs> it's like a slap, slap in the face with a wet fish. Like, <laughs> yeah. That just makes so much sense. It yeah. does. It does. It avoids so much suffering of young people and children. It avoids the trauma of them being removed from their families. And you cannot underestimate the the pain and the the suffering uh, that that has on a young person when they are removed from their family. That is a traumatic, traumatic event which stays with them for life. And. Um, Stopping that, and then the, not not only that, but the impact it has on the parents um, avoids so much suffering, and at the same time saves so much money. Um, and the alternative is that we get to spend an extra couple of billion on have, doubling the the numbers of kids in care. So it's a pretty easy choice when it comes down to it. It is a no-brainer, and, and the way you say it is, is is perfectly succinct. And I think anyone can understand the rationale behind it. But the fact is, we've had a stolen generation. We've had a, a public apology, 
um, about that. But the the picture that you paint here in Victoria is merit very much so that that's happening and continuing to happen and at a at an increase. So I was wondering if you could share any insight into how what is stopping this from getting into the ears and into the minds and into the decision makers and saying, yes, mm. let's implement some of this. You've made a comprehensive argument. It's there in a document. It's backed by, by people mm. respected in the business community. Um, what do you think stopping it? Look, I think, um, I think ultimately it comes down to a lack of interest in the policy area. And I, it's interesting you, you talk about um, uh, you, you talk about the apology. So we've had the apology to um, the stolen generations. We've had the apology to forgotten Australians. Uh, so, so people who were in care prior to 1990s. We've had um, apologies to, um, to those involved in forced adoption. And even in just in relation to those three apologies, based on what we're seeing now in the child protection system, at least here in Victoria, we have learned absolutely nothing. Um, you know, the reality is we, and this is the collective we, still think that we can do better for these kids than their own families. And those families are most often families who have very little resources and and families who are Aboriginal. So it is about being discriminatory towards people of colour and people on people who are disadvantaged. That's essentially what it is. We, we as a society continue to think that people who do not have very much in the way of financial resources and those and people of colour do not have the right to look after their own children when things go wrong. So not have the view that there are reasons why that occurs and we need to assist those families. We come up, come in with this paternalistic view and it's happening today, like uh, here in Victoria, 10 kids would have been removed from their family just today. Um, we continue to have that paternalistic view and we are seeing that in the doubling of the numbers of kids in child protection. and. It has to change. Like, what, what the alternative is by the, what, in, in 20 years, we'll have 100,000 kids in care? And, and I think what's interesting, when those apologies were made, we had, we had prime ministers in tears each time. Um, and, we, you know, they talked about the lessons. They sat down and talked with the people who suffered as a result of those decisions. Well, there are families... Who are who are on the end of exactly those types of decisions today, as we're doing this podcast, and they also deserve an apology right now, and they also deserve a different approach, and that approach 
that is what I was talking about, and that is to work with them at a much earlier point before their children are removed, to recognise that them being uh, uh, a family unit um, is much better than the alternative of removal. And I'll say it again, you cannot assume that, a, that a, a young person or a child in child protection is better off simply because they've been removed. That is a not a assumption based on any fact. It's based on a history. Um, and it's based on, as you've touched on throughout this, it's based on something that we as a country as a colonising country and colonising society haven't been able to um, acknowledge and, and front up and face up to. And, and as you touch on throughout, it, it seems to stem through leadership. Yes, we can talk a little bit to our past, but we can't acknowledge our present, which is connected very much to our past. I wanted to ask you, Michael, though, a little bit, you're, you're a passionate man and you're doing some great work. But first of all, what's led you here? And then what was your childhood like? And, and can did you have any direct contact and in, in tangible take into where you are now or have you just landed where you are you spoke a little bit about growing up in queensland um but i just wanted to hear a little bit more about that uh so what was the first part of that question sorry the first part of it was was what led you on this part path to where you are now so it's interconnected but i wanted to hear a little bit about your childhood a bit more yeah okay so um look I, i i had a um uh I had a very happy childhood. Um, I grew up in a very um, disadvantaged area in um, in Brisbane. Uh, so, grew up in the uh, in a suburb called Woodridge, which is now part of Logan City, which was kind of the the suburb where people did it very tough, and that if you were making, um, you know, every every city has a a suburb that's referred to in a derogatory way. Well, for Brisbane, it's um, it's Woodridge. Uh, so these issues were, they were all around me when I was growing up, but I guess I didn't really, um, I, I didn't really realise it. I think, you know, when you're a kid, a lot of stuff can happen that you don't uh, appreciate, but... But certainly, um, there were a lot of kids who were removed. There was a lot of family violence, um, and a lot of real, um, a lot of poverty. But I do say I didn't. I I really didn't get that fully at the time, and and it's interesting going back um, as an adult because my parents still live there, and. You, you you know you do come at it with um, different eyes. I think um, mum and dad were always big um, volunteers, and they were connected with the local church community, and they would volunteer in other ways. And um, particularly, mum's family were always doing different types of um, you know volu- volunteer work, and there was a Catholic element to that. Um, and I and I remember when I was in my late teens, and uh, even as a kid, I, I would get desperately sad that people were homeless. 
um, and I'd want to do something about it. And I always, and I always thought I would do something about it. I just didn't know how. And what's even more bizarre is that when I went to university, I ended up doing accounting. Uh, and I'm not sure, quite sure why I did accounting, but I did accounting. Um, and I ended up working at um, uh, KPMG and then, for those of you who are a bit older, Arthur Anderson, um, and went into those consulting firms, found my way into um, community organisations and ended up working at a place called Sacred Heart Mission with people who were chronically homeless. And I think the big thing that I learned while I was at Sacred Heart Mission is that this notion that, you know, homelessness can happen to anyone is actually not true in Australia. We don't have a perfect safety net, but we have a pretty good safety net. Don't get me wrong, it can be much better, but it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good safety net. And um, to become chronically homeless, uh, you need to be facing a whole lot of different types of issues. And one of the things that I learned there was that for those people who are chronically homeless, childhood abuse um, and the trauma associated with that was often at the heart of their, was, was the catalyst if you like, for their chronic homelessness. And I focused very much while I was in the homelessness area on getting, increasing the supply of affordable housing, but also, um, you know, working, you know, thinking about how do you work with someone once they are chronically homeless to a point where they're sustainably housed and connecting with community. But what increasingly interested me was how do you intervene earlier to stop that happening in the first place? And that's what drew me to Berry Street um, and working with um, children and young people and their families to avoid what would be that journey towards chronic homelessness um, if they experience that abuse and, and neglect and removal from their family. And I guess what... what um, I have found since coming to Berry Street and getting a much closer perspective on the child protection system and the child welfare system is that it is under-resourced and dysfunctional to the point where it is almost geared towards producing people who are chronically homeless. So our child protection system, I don't think is geared towards protecting children. I think it is actually geared towards creating long-term disadvantage and ultimately chronic homelessness. And I think that's why I'm even more interested in how do you intervene effectively earlier um, to make sure that families can stay together as much as possible. Now, I, I just need to say again, there are obviously cases where families should not be together, and that's not what I'm talking about here, but that's the minority. But in, in most cases, keeping those families together. And, and I gotta say, even a barely functional family is a hell of a lot better than being in out of home care. I think that's, that's the reality that we've got to face as well. And so what absolutely um, 
drives me and I'm passionate about now is how it is advocating for a child protection, a child welfare system that actually delivers the outcomes that we would all want for children and young people who are doing it the toughest in our community. And for us to realise as a community that removing a child from their family is is the most significant decision you can ever make. And, and it needs to be taken with a heavy heart and we need to do everything possible before that decision is made um, and that includes supporting the family. And if it is if it is made, and ultimately they do need to go in the out of home care, out of home care system, then we need to do a hell of a lot better um, than we're doing at the moment. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and and for sharing sharing such a powerful story that I think, you know, everyone frankly needs needs to hear. I think it's um, you know, it's. Uh, in some ways, I think it's you know it's it's frightening and it feels very like this is a systemic thing that perhaps you can't change. But I think what is um, quite empowering and also uplifting in terms of actually how you how you talk about this is that by actually acting earlier, but then also I think from us as a community, actually understanding that that's the expectation we should have, that no one's coming in to actually um, rescue these children unless it absolutely needs to happen, as you've um, yeah. quite made clear. It's actually, it's on us to actually kind of act earlier to actually help support um, these families. And I think at a human level, I mean, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't I want that? Wouldn't Patrick mm. want that? Wouldn't anyone mm. want that mm. if we were struggling for someone to help us? So thank you so much for sharing sharing that. It's such a powerful message, and uh, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's B-A-U-P-O-D-C-O.